the West Haven campus. And yeah, we just want to extend to you uh, happy Father's Day. You know, I said this on Mother's Day, but I think dads are so important to the fabric of our society, right? Mothers obviously are important, so are fathers, and today we're celebrating fathers. I just want to share with you one of my favorite memories of Father's Day at church. A few years back, when we were early on at Alpine, we used to meet at the Terrace Plaza Playhouse, if you remember that. Some of you may have been there. But uh, we, it, this, the way the stage work is you sat on both sides, and the stage was right here. And so for one Father's Day, we got two reclining chairs for like the dad with the most kids and for the, dad, the newest dad to go sit down on those chairs. And uh, so the two guys, you know, they won, and they went and sat down there. And it was hilarious because one of them fell asleep in like five seconds. And everyone could see him the entire service, and he was like just out snoring for like 45 minutes. It was awesome. So that's why we don't do reclining chairs anymore on Father's Day. But uh, yeah, happy Father's Day. Bless your dads today, and uh, we're so grateful for you. And then also, uh, I just do also want to remind you that our Fusion Sunday morning class is meeting grades 7 through 12 upstairs in the Fusion room. And uh, we had a great time at the sixth grade graduation last week. If uh, your kids were there, there was a bunch of kids. It was crazy at Boondocks. So uh, we're really excited for uh, this new wave of kids coming into our Fusion Youth Group. But if that applies to you, you're welcome to go now. If not, then we're going to continue this morning in our series, The Pursuit. The Pursuit is uh, really the basic Christian principles, fundamentals uh, and so the next 12 weeks, this, this is the second week, so you're, if this is your first time today, you caught us early on, and uh, last week we just kind of gave an overview. This week we're going to get a little bit more specific into God's Word, but before we do that, I, I do want to ask you a question. I like to ask questions at the beginning to kind of get you to think, and this is a really, really important question, um, and you might be asked it, or you may have been asked already about this, but what is... If someone were to come up to you and ask you, what is truth, what would you say? What is truth, right? And in the society that we live in today, I think that so many of us, we, we, if we're honest, we wouldn't really know how to answer that. We don't want to offend people by saying something that would be against them. And, and really, truth is almost kind of relative in our society today, right? Like if you've ever heard... This, that's just your truth and this is my truth and even though they totally contradict, that's okay. But at the end of the day, truth is truth, right? Truth is not subjective, truth is objective. So in the end, all of us will know what the truth is about everything. And I don't think any of us can, can say that we have the whole truth because we're, we don't know everything, right? If you think you know everything, then you're a problem to society because uh, we need to be humble, right? We need to be humble. Some of the smartest people in the world, that they, they know what they, they don't know what they don't know, right? The more you learn, the more you realize you don't know what you don't know. And so we should be humble about this. But here at Alpine Church, um, and really Christianity as a whole, if you're to ask us what truth is, we, we would take you to God's word, the Bible. This is what we would say is true. And that's why this is our first value, which is born out of 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. See, we look to God and his word in all we do because, as scripture affirms about itself, 
All scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what is right. God uses it to prepare and equip his people to do every good work. You see, the Bible, the Bible is completely sufficient. This is basically what this verse is saying, that the word of God is completely sufficient. And that word sufficient means it's enough. It's enough. It's enough for what? It's enough to teach us what is true, make us realize what is wrong, corrects us when we're wrong, teaches us to do what is right, and to prepare and equip his people for every good work. And we have had some issues with our media this morning, if you haven't noticed. So hopefully, hopefully it doesn't wig out too much. But uh, we'll get back to it. Just bear with me. But this is why we teach the Bible here at Alpine Church. That's why it's not my opinion. It's not anyone else's opinion. We stand on the Word of God, and to the best of our ability, we're going to teach you and show you what it says because it equips us to do it equips us to do every single good work. And we know that because that's what the Bible affirms about itself. But the Bible, it's important to know this because some people expect the Bible to be kind of like an encyclopedia, right? An encyclopedia with every answer to every question that you could ever ask. And nowhere in the Bible does the Bible say that, right? It doesn't say this is every, it has every answer to every question that you're ever going to have. And sometimes that's why, you know, we get in arguments because sometimes we act like um, maybe the Bible has every answer, but, but it doesn't. But it, what it does have is it has the ability to make us see what is true, what is true about us what is true about the rest of humanity, what is true about God, and how to know God personally. And as we're going to see today, uh, the Bible is just so, so, so reliable, so much more so than many other things in this world, and that's why we stand on its truth. And really, one of the products of Scripture is this. It says in Romans 15, 4, such things were written in the scriptures, another way of Bible, long ago to teach us. And the scriptures give us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for God's promises to be fulfilled. You know, so many people uh, use this book to incite fear and anxiety and worry, but that's not the point at which these words were written. You see, another way as we go, if we go back and look at this verse in uh, 2 Timothy all scripture is inspired by God. Another way that that could be said is that scripture is God-breathed. It's God-breathed. In other words, the Bible was written by humans through the inspiration and the power of God's spirit. It, all scripture is God-breathed. And so God-breathed scripture gives us hope and encouragement as we wait patiently for the promises of God to be fulfilled. So, so when, we're, when we put our trust and faith in Jesus, we read the Bible in a different way. We read it with hope. We're encouraged by it. I mean, I love, I love the, the Bible app on my phone. Uh, if you don't have it, you should definitely download it. It's free. Most people have a smartphone, unless you're my dad, who has a flip phone still. But uh, most people can get, yeah, there we go. Uh, most people can get, a, on their smartphone, they can get a, a, the Bible app, and you have every translation, you, you have all these plans, it's, it's incredible, and it'll read it for you, right? So that's, that's even better. So, um, 
You know, my prayer for us really today is that we would see the centrality and the importance of the Bible. It's going to kind of be one of those fire hose sermons where there's going to be a lot of verses thrown at you. They're going to be up on the screen. Hopefully the screen works. But we're going to look at what the Bible says and why the Bible is reliable. And that's the title of today's sermon. Three reasons to trust the Bible. Let's pray again before we get into this. God, we pray, Lord, that we would... Uh, just have our eyes opened this morning to see how powerful and active and alive your word is, God, and that you would uh, not only just this morning, God, but we would look at your word throughout the week, that we would let it mold us and shape us into who you've called us to be for your glory and for our good. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, this is the first reason. Historical evidence. You see, ancient manuscripts and archaeological digs have stacked up in favor of biblical reliability. So even though the Bible, the the canon of Scripture, canon is kind of a fancy church word, but the, the point at which the Bible stopped being added to was almost 2,000 years ago. Okay, And so for 2,000 years, we've had the Bible as we have it today. We have it just like this in front of us. And... um, there's so many manuscript, there's so much manuscript evidence of the Bible that really helps us to be able to trust it uh, because, you know, we like evidence for things, right? We want to see uh, things that have backing and we don't just want to go off blind faith. Like there's literally, you can go to a Bible museum and see some of these manuscripts that are thousands and thousands of years old and that's so, uh, that's so encouraging for us as Christians, Remnants have provided this reliable testimony for modern day readers because God has preserved his word. So we're going to just look at this real quick. So here are some other ancient manuscripts from Aristotle. We have, you know, just under, just about 50 copies of his. From Homer, we have 643 copies, and these are like thousands of years old. And then from the New Testament alone, We have over 5,600 copies, and if you uh, go to, and this is in Greek, these are Greek copies, which is what the New Testament was written in, and if you go even beyond that to other language, we have about 20,000 manuscripts from just the New Testament alone. So as you see, you know, these people never question, or hardly ever question Aristotle or Homer, uh, but the New Testament has so much more reliability and evidence that it's true. Um, you know, the, the Bible does very well in uh, historical evidence. But how do we know? How do we know that, you know, that it hasn't been changed over time, right? Because that's something that you hear all the time. You hear that, well, yeah, these are super old, but, but it's been changed. It's morphed over time and culture and everything. Well, in 1947, uh, some uh, shepherd boy found some manuscripts in a cave in the Middle East, and these are what are called the Dead Sea Scrolls. You've probably heard of the Dead Sea Scrolls. These are what are the, a lot of, in, if you go to a Bible museum, this is what you're going to see, the Dead Sea Scrolls, which are actually even older than the original manuscripts that we have. They're almost a thousand years older. And so uh, when we look at this, part of almost every Old Testament book was found. And in fact, the entire book 
of Isaiah was found. And so this is great, right? Because we have these newer Greek manuscripts and then we have these Hebrew manuscripts that we can see over the span of about a thousand years if things have been changed or not. Okay, so we have a thousand year period. Have you thought how crazy long a thousand years is, by the way? Like our country is like, like 250 years old. Like, we're, we're babies, right, compared to this. This is a thousand years of history. It's crazy that we even have this. But here, here, look at this. So the Masoretic text, or the Old Testament, was 800 A.D. So these are the manuscripts that we had. Aristotle's 1100 A.D., so even newer. So the Dead Sea Scrolls go back before even Jesus and... The book of Isaiah, the entire book, compared to what we have today through translation, is 95% identical. 95% identical. And a lot of those uh, things that were different are just mostly spellings and words. If you know anything about linguistics, which I don't much, but I do know that it's really hard sometimes to take one language and transfer it to another language especially when that language is archaic, right? That we don't really even use it anymore. And so this 5%, it's not like God said this in this, in this translation, but then God says the opposite in this translation. That's not how it is. It's like a misspelling of a word or something like that. And it's, it's interesting for us to know, you know, how rigorous this uh, copying was of the Bible, how rigorous this was, and we're going to look at that in just a second, but we need to understand, you know, from, from thousands of years ago up until now, we have a lot of very reliable evidence. If you're ever in Washington, D.C., you should go to the Bible Museum, and you can see this stuff, like, right out in front of you, and it'd be even better if you learned how to read Greek and Hebrew. That might be a little bit harder than getting to Washington, D.C., but that would definitely help, um, but we, we have a lot of historical reliability in Scripture. Now, the second thing is this. We have textual evidence. So the Bible is 66 books written by 40 authors over the course of 1,500 years, and yet it tells one unified story. When we read the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, it's one cohesive, unified story. Now, I'll be honest with you. I'll be real. When you're in the book of, of Numbers, it's like really hard to see that this is one unified story, right? You're reading and it's like, oh my gosh, and this tribe had this and this tribe had this, right? And it's telling all these facts that you don't feel like really apply, but everything applies and it all works together for one purpose. And that purpose is to show us who God is and ultimately how we come to know God through Jesus, you see, from Genesis 3 to, to Revelation 22, 21, 22, uh, the story is about God redeeming his people through his son, Jesus. That's the story of the Bible. It's one cohesive story over 1,500 years. Now, if 1,000 years is a long time, 1,500 years is even longer, right? Add 500 to that, right? And you, and you just think that a lot of these biblical authors, a lot of the 40 of these people didn't even know each other. I mean, they sometimes lived thousands of miles apart from each other, yet they were writing this one single unified story. Now, when we read the Bible, 
Who knows the three most important things about real estate? Location, location, location. Now, I don't know if that's true anymore because, like, it seems like real estate is just whatever you have is worth, you know, way more than it should be. But when you read the Bible, when you read the Bible, the three most important things are context, context, context. You see, because the Bible, 66 books, they weren't written in all the same narrative. Some is poetry, some is historical, some is, some is metaphorical, right? And so we, can't, we have to understand what we're reading, and we have to apply it in the right way. So you don't read the book of Psalms like you read the book of Matthew. You don't read the book of Daniel like you read the book of 2 Timothy, you got a, 2 Timothy is a letter to a person. Daniel is a lot of prophecy and narrative. It's a lot of story, right? And so as we read the Bible, we need to understand what we're reading. And I know that that seems like a tall task, but we have Google, and there's a lot of really good resources to help you figure out what you're reading. And I, I encourage you, uh, we have these Bibles, by the way, out there that are free. If you don't have a Bible, please, please, please take one. But I would encourage you to invest in a good study Bible that has the context and that has commentaries and that you can see, you know, some, of the, some more of the background. And I know that's a little bit more work, but it's well worth your time to do that. But you see, again, these, these 40 authors, they, a lot of them didn't know each other. Let's just look at a few of the famous authors, right? We have Moses. Moses was this adopted son of an Egyptian pharaoh, grew up in royalty, then went and murdered a guy, and then went and saved the Israelite people from 400 years of slavery, okay? Then you have David. He's this, he's this famous warrior king of Israel who went through, you know, he wrote almost all of the Psalms. He wrote a lot of other things. We have Luke. He was a first century doctor who walked along with Jesus. We have John, who was a Jewish fisherman, which is like the opposite of who Luke is. And then we have Paul, who's a Pharisee, who's, whose mission was to kill Christians and to torture Christians for following Jesus. And then ultimately, he comes to know who Jesus is. All these guys come from different backgrounds and different places, yet they tell one cohesive story over 15th century. From the beginning to the end, it's pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to Jesus. And we're going to look at a few of these right now in, in the Old Testament and then in the New Testament. So let's look first at the lineage of Jesus. So Genesis 49, it says this, almost at the very end of Genesis, the scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from his descendants, until the coming of the one to whom it belongs, the one whom all nations will honor. Okay? Then Way, way later, in the book of Matthew, it says, This is the record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, descendant of David and of Abraham. And then it goes on to say, Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. You see, Jesus fulfilled this prophecy thousands of years before the, birth, the lineage of Jesus. Confirmed, it said in Genesis, confirmed in Matthew. Then the birthplace of Jesus. It says this in Micah. But you, O Bethlehem, are only a small village among all the people of Judah, yet a ruler of Israel, whose origins are in the distant past, will come from you on my behalf. So that, this, is, this is what you need. Bethlehem is like, it's like not, it's like a wandship Utah, right? It's not a big, it's not a big uh, 
town or anything like that. It's, it's this pretty small place. Um, it wasn't like New York City or L.A. or anything like that. It's a very specific prophecy in Micah from Bethlehem. But then we see in Luke, the Christmas story, at the time of the Roman Emperor Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. You see, Jesus, this is where Jesus was born. Thousands of years earlier, it was prophesied that he would be born in Bethlehem. Very, very specific, right? So if it's not correct, we know that it's not correct, and it would be way off. And then the last is the death of Jesus. Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? This is David. My enemies surround me. They have pierced my hands and feet. They divide my garments among themselves and throw dice for my clothing. And then Isaiah 53 says, but he was pierced for our rebellion, crushed for our sins. He was beaten so we could be whole. He was whipped so we could be healed. Unjustly condemned, he was led away, but he was buried like a criminal. He, he was put in a rich man's grave. If you know the story of Jesus, after he is killed, Joseph of Arimathea gives him his grave. This rich man gives Jesus his grave. And Jesus, as we know, on the cross was beaten and scorned and mocked. And this is what's also interesting in Psalm 22. They have pierced my hands and feet. You know, crucifixion was not a popular way of death back when David was writing this. And so it's, it's kind of interesting that he was talking about this when it wasn't really a thing at the time. But later on, as we see, Jesus went to the cross to die for us. And this is why Jesus said in John 5, 39, he said, you search the scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the scriptures point to me. The Bible points to Jesus. That's the point of God sending us his word to point to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the way that we're saved, the way that we come into relationship with God is through Jesus. And Jesus even said it. You think you search these scriptures because you think they give you eternal life, but the scriptures really point to me. You know, this is interesting because you can be a person who really, 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 really knows the Bible well, but be so far away from Jesus. Isn't that kind of like ironic, right? That you're, you're searching the scriptures, you're studying the scriptures, you're doing all this, yet you miss the whole point of what it's talking about. It's talking about Jesus. There's so many examples in the Old Testament and in the New that all point to the coming Messiah, Jesus. And he even affirmed it himself. The scriptures point to me. You know, I think that we need to be somewhat careful uh, because the Pharisees knew the scriptures really well, right? That no one knew the Bible better than the Pharisees did. Yet, the Pharisees were the only group of people that Jesus was like really, really direct and firm with because they just missed the entire point. They were using the Bible to bash people and to shame people and to guilt people. And they pointed to themselves and they said, look at how great we are. They totally missed the point. They totally missed the point that it was about Jesus. It was about the coming Messiah. And so for us, you know, we, we don't, worship the Bible. We don't worship the Bible. We worship the one that the Bible talks about, right? We worship Jesus. We don't worship a book. 
We worship the one to whom this is written by and about. Because Jesus is ultimately the one that changes lives, and and that's really the last proof, the last evidence that we have this morning. Personal evidence. The Bible is ultimately about Jesus, and the changed lives of his followers is the most compelling proof of its message. Uh, Many of you have heard the story, probably, I think I've shared it before, but of, of Lee Strobel, who was a writer for the Chicago Tribune. He was a a very acclaimed, very, very successful writer. And his wife, you know, everything was going well, and his wife ended up giving her life to Jesus after reading the Bible and going to church. And Lee Strobel is like, what are you doing? You know, what are you, why would you do this? This is terrible. And his his wife knew that she wasn't going to win him over, with, you know, arguing or anything like that, but she just said, you know what, I I want you to read the Bible and prove me wrong. And so he started reading the Bible, and decades later, right, Lee Strobel has written A Case for Christ, A Case for Faith, it's been made into a movie, he's writing more books, he's done so much for millions and millions and millions of people struggling with their faith, uh, just because he picked up the Bible and God met him, where he was, because he took, he, he trusted his wife, and he took her, and he took God at his word, and he ended up meeting Jesus. His life was changed. You know, I, I know for me, uh, it wasn't that cool of a story, but obviously, you know, I came to faith pretty young, and really what did it were, was primarily the Bible. Like, I read about who God was, and, and what he did, and the things that he did, and it's not, you know, I recognize that it's not up to me and that it's by grace through faith alone. And I, I realize this through reading the Bible. You know, it's good to listen to what people say. I, I love, you know, wise counsel and, and everything like that. But at the end of the day, God's word is going to speak for itself. Other people don't need to say anything about it. This is why Hebrews 4.12, it says this. The word of God is alive and powerful It is sharper than the sharpest two-edged sword, cutting between soul and spirit, between joint and marrow. It exposes our innermost thoughts and desires. The Bible is powerful. The Bible is alive. In other words, the Bible is relevant with what we deal with today. You know, so many people say, well, this is thousands of years old. It has no relevance to our lives today. That's just not true. The Bible has so much relevance to our life today. Why? Because ultimately it's God's words to us. And God's words never expire. They never become irrelevant. So it's just as relevant as it was 2,000 years ago, as it is today, as it will be in 2,000 years. God's word is alive and powerful. But again, as we read the Bible, let's not forget who the Bible is about. Jesus, who, who changes lives And we're going to look at a few of these lives that were changed by Jesus. The first is Peter. Peter. Luke 22, 56 and 57. A servant girl noticed him in the firelight and began staring at him. She noticed Peter. Finally, she said, this man was one of Jesus' followers. But Peter denied it. Woman, he said, I don't even know him. So this is Peter, right? One of the... One of the, if, if you had a Mount Rushmore of people in the New Testament of faith, 
Peter would probably be on it. He was one of Jesus's kind of inner three disciples who was with Jesus all the time. And at the, at the moment of Christ's crucifixion, of when Jesus was being tortured and put on trial, Peter says this, I don't even know who that is. Right? Can you imagine? And Jesus even called Peter out on it before he did this. He said, Peter, before I go to the cross, you're going to deny me three times. And Peter was like, no, I'm not. It's like, yeah, you are. And he did, right? He denied Christ three times, yet Christ redeemed him. Because when he comes, when, when Jesus dies and is resurrected, and he comes back to the disciples, he says this. After breakfast, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, Peter replied. You know I love you. And then he said, then feed my lambs, Jesus told him. You know, Peter, that, word, that name means rock. Christ said, I'm going to build my church on this person, this person who denied me three times, right? God redeems, God changes. Jesus took a hold of Peter and forgave him. And Peter actually went to die for his faith in Jesus. Next is Thomas. We all know doubting Thomas, right? John 20, 25, they told him, we have seen the Lord. But Thomas replied, I won't believe it unless I see the nail wounds in his hands. Put my fingers into them and place my hand into the wound in his side. So Thomas, obviously, he's, he doesn't believe the disciples that they saw Jesus. And it was pretty unbelievable, right, that someone died and rose again. And so this is where he gets his name, Doubting Thomas. But again, Jesus redeems Thomas' story. He says this. In 27 and 28, he said, Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and look at my hands. Put your hand in the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Believe. And then Thomas says, My Lord and my God. Thomas would also go on to die for his faith in Jesus. And then the last one, probably the most famous the Apostle Paul, Philippians 3, 5, he said, I was circumcised when I was eight days old. I'm a pure-blooded citizen of Israel and a member of the tribe of Benjamin, a real Hebrew if there ever was one. I was a member of the Pharisees who demand the strictest obedience to the Jewish law. You know, Paul was a really, 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 really good Pharisee. <laughs> he was the best of the best. So much so that he, again, he, he, he was revered and looked up to by these other people who were trying to stop the message of Jesus from getting out. But like the others, you know, Paul who, who had this life of murdering and torturing Christians, this is what Jesus did for Paul. It says in verse 7, I once thought these things, the th all the things he said, were valuable, but now I consider them worthless because of what Christ has done. Because of what Christ has done, I consider all the things that he had just said worthless. You know, there's no way to explain these transformations. And, and I, you know, I, I'm sure that all of us can think of a transformation in someone's life that we've seen who's been just totally transformed, right, by Jesus. And it's like, that person? That person loves Jesus? I remember when they were this, but that's what God is in the business of doing. He's in the business of redeeming people. And oftentimes, you know, he does that through 
his written word, the Bible. And so as we end today, I, I want to encourage you with, with this. In the same chapter, uh, or, or in the, the same author, excuse me, of uh, Colossians is the Apostle Paul. And he said this. He said, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. You see this word dwell, it means to let it influence us. This word richly, it means a lot. Okay, so it's saying, let the word of God influence, influence you a lot. And I just, I, you know, I, I, this is a challenge to all of us this morning. You know, I don't know, again, statistics or statistics, but I actually really, I, I believe that this is true. Over 80% of Christians, Christians, not, not just Americans or any, anyone like that, over 80% of Christians only read their Bible Sunday morning at church. And most of the time, it's just off the screen like this. 80% don't even open their Bible during the week. And it just makes me, you know, it makes me wonder, is a half hour a week, like, is that sufficient for us? I, I know it's not for me. I mean, maybe it could be for you, but I just know what life throws at us, right? And, and how many things that we go through that we just need God's perspective and we need God's reminder and we need God, God's hope and God's encouragement. And if we're only in the Bible a half an hour on a Sunday morning, I mean, I just don't think that that's enough. Psalm 119, verse 105. Your word is a lamp to guide my feet and a light for my path. You know, how can we be guided by God's word if we're not in reading God's word, studying it? And this isn't, this isn't legalistic. I'm not trying to guilt or shame anyone here. I'm speaking to myself just as much as I am you. Like, if we, if we want to be guided by God's word, then we have to be in God's word. Like, that, right? Doesn't that just make sense? There's a story, again, I'm not trying to shame any of us or guilt any of us, but this was, this was very convicting for me. So this is a few decades back, and this is from a book called uh, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life. And one of the stories that he shares in the opening is in, in regards to reading the Bible is there was a man who came to faith in, in, the, in the Midwest, again, decades ago, and he started reading his Bible, and then a, you know, a short time later, he was in a horrific accident. And he lost his eyesight, he lost his hands, and he lost a lot of his nerve endings. He couldn't feel anything. And so, you know, one of the biggest things that he wanted to do was read God's Word. He wanted to read the Bible. And so he heard about someone who learned to read Braille with their lips, Braille is, you know, what blind people use to, to read the dots. And, and so he, he ordered some Braille to start to learn how to read it. And he realized that he didn't have any nerve endings on his lips, so he couldn't do it. But then he found out that he did on his tongue. So you probably know where this is going. He learned to read Braille with his tongue. And at the time that this was written, he had read the Bible through four complete times. 
what's my excuse? Right? What's your excuse? What's our excuse? We, we have it. And, and the other thing that we really haven't talked about is some people are literally dying to read this book in other parts of the world. Literally dying to read even just a page of scripture. And we have the whole thing here. You can go to a coffee shop and sit and open your Bible for now. Hopefully it continues that way. But we can freely read this. We have this at our disposal. And so again, my my challenge and encouragement to you is to get into God's word to read this. And we wanna help you in this. And so we're gonna do, as a church, we're gonna do a 30-day challenge which is a walk through the Proverbs. It's actually 31 days because there's 31 chapters in Proverbs. But starting in July, we're gonna read through one chapter of Proverbs a day as a church. And we're gonna do it on the YouVersion Bible app. To sign up for that, you can go on our website, Alpine Church. Uh, The sign up is right there. You can do it for free. If you don't wanna do it on your smartphone or if you don't have a smartphone, pick up a Bible. And day one is chapter one. Day two is chapter two. Day 15 is chapter 15, right? Let's read through the Proverbs together as a church to to really live what we're preaching this morning, to get into God's word and to let it shape us and mold us. Let's pray together.